Is there anything you would have done differently? We've reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Dyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. In every episode, we're going to tell you what's on our front page, a quick recap of the stories that caught our attention this week. Then we'll do a deep dive into our obsessions, the things we couldn't stop thinking about. And finally, Chris is going to make me say something nice before we sign off. Up first, on our front page. These are the stories that we thought were most important this this week. First off, hot off the presses, Michael Wolff book Mm. on the Trump rocky transition from the Trump presidency into the Trump post-presidency has a, not sure if it's a shocking allegation, but an allegation that Rupert Murdoch was the force behind the Fox, the controversial Fox News decision to call Arizona for Joe Biden. And folks, I am happy to welcome the authoritative source on the Fox News Arizona call to this program. So, Chris, tell us the truth. Did he get this right? No, um, Michael Wolf did not get this right. It couldn't have been the case because we called it. I didn't make the call. The team made the call and my boss, Bill Salmon, clicked the box that clicked the box. And if you want to know how false the Michael Wolf claim is, just you can find the clip on air. When our our colleagues on air colleagues uh, uh, reported our call, uh, they are genuinely surprised uh, the way that I don't know what Fox is going to do about a decision desk in the future. That remains to be seen. But I can tell you what the for more than a decade, what the rule was. And this is how it has to be with the decision desk. A decision desk has to operate autonomously because it's the only time that a news organization really gets to make news itself. We spend a lot of time, you spend a lot of money on being able to make these forecasts in elections. And when you're ready to do it, the whole goal is to beat the competition. And Fox generally did. And we were into it. And we liked having, uh, we got a lot of resources to do it. And you can't wait around to make your calls until news ex- other executives at the network feel good about it. It is one of those things you just got to go do. And no. And I think. Well, so, Chris. What you're saying is you own this entirely. Oh, my gosh. And you are letting Rupert Murdoch off the hook for this. I hope that was bleep. Error. I hope that was bleeped. <laughs> I hope we have bleeping capacity because if we don't have bleeping capacity, I can't be on this podcast. With- Starwalt absolves Murdoch is, uh, is the headline. Well, I, I guess I'll put it this way. He, they could have stopped it or they could have quit putting it on television, I suppose, after we made it. Uh, But no, he did not make the call. And I'm very proud to have been part of making the call. I'm very proud to have been part of the best decision desk in the business for a long time. Did you talk to Wolf for the book? No. The thing about Wolf, and here's the scam. If all you do is say, come and tell me anything you want to tell me. And you could read, I, I read the one White House book. And it's very transparent at certain points where you can tell who's dishing on whom. But you grant anonymity to people unnecessarily and then let them lie to you. And I don't th- – somebody asked me who was also aware of another 
egregious inaccuracy in the book. And they said, do you think he just lies? Does he make stuff up? And I said, no, he just lets people lie Who's to the him. He? Oh, I see. Wolf uh, just is like, oh. I have oh. to say, interestingly, I sort of coming up and always being interested in media and then in media reporting for a time, I always admired Michael Wolf. I think he's a fantastic writer and did really good, vicious excellent reporting on the media. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a biography of Rupert Murdoch that I think I read. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that was very good. And then his foray into Trump territory, uh, I, I have not been as impressed by the well, there's reporting a, that I've there's seen. There's also, a, there's a Steele dossier kind of component here. If you give people, if you give Trump haters what they want, in the form of a highly sensationalized the the truth about Donald Trump as a failed president is that it wasn't as dramatic it wasn't that it wasn't fire and fury right it was mostly inertia and an inability well the of, fire and fury was like fire and fury signifying nothing uh, right you well, know that, sure there was a lot of fire and fury it just wasn't about like important global issues yeah or getting stuff done and, <laughs> and uh, I I don't know why Wolf became what he became. And I agree with you. He he was a, a good read in the old days. But, you know, I can certainly say in this case he's wrong. Up next is your item, Chris, on the Washington Post and my former colleagues, Philip Rucker and Carol Lenig, and the, uh, the excerpt from their forthcoming book on the demise of the Trump presidency. This, this is, let me just say, this is a cousin to the Wolf story, and it's about anonymity. So I have a real, and I am not alone in this. I don't know where you are on this, but the casual to aggressive granting of anonymity to tell political gossip stories, to tell palace intrigue stories. Opposed to what kind of stories? So you can grant anonymity to tell a story of crucial public importance to get something out. So you have the great example with the Pentagon Papers, right? You have great examples where there's a, a, a relevant pressing matter and that a person has this. It's like a whistleblower standard. A, a person has reason to fear. You can't get this information any other way. And the two standards are basically you can't get this information any other way. And this information is crucial. What we've done in the aftermath of the politicoification of the Washington Ouch. Press Corps is just granting anonymity willy-nilly all of the time. And it happens on a lot of stories. And it would so it's one thing if you grant anonymity to say, and this isn't even good. The NSA is spying on domestic telephone <laughs> conversations or something. Well, I was going to say, it's not good, but it's a little understandable if you say- If you're a, deep throat. A source close to the thinking of the majority leader says that the uh, revised bill will be out for markup on Tuesday. Okay, like whatever. A source familiar. It's you, I'm sure you've been on those calls, White House calls, where it's like, I am to be quoted as a senior, senior administration, administration official. official. You're like, okay, whatever. So that's bad enough. But it's even worse when the purpose is not to shed light and is not to advance the story, but it's just for gossip. And so here's this. So the, uh, your former colleagues have a book, which I'm sure is a good read. They're good writers, I'm sure. And I'm sure they have a lot of good sources. But it's hit with a big bang today that uh, Mark Milley, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, here's the quote, he grew more nervous uh, telling aides he feared that the president, and this is talking about Trump during the the long, hot summer of 2020, 
might attempt to use the military to stay in office. Uh, the book is called I Alone Can Fix It. There's your plug. Uh, Milley described a, quote, stomach-churning feeling as he listened to Trump's untrue complaints of election fraud, drawing comparisons to the 1933 uh, attack on Germany's parliament. This is a Reichstag moment, Milley told aides, according to a unnamed source. Now, here's the thing. I don't know whether Mark Milley said Reichstag moment or didn't say Reichstag moment. He might have made reference to the Reichstag. It might have been reasonable to even in a senior discussion with aides talk about the way that republics fall. I don't know. But to grant anonymity to somebody to, I'm sure it will make the people who like Mark Milley when he fights with, what's his name, the, the congressman from Florida, Gates. For, for people who already like Mark Milley, I'm sure that this will make them like him more. For people who dislike Mark Milley, this will make them hate him more. And it doesn't advance a story. It doesn't do anything. to grant For the Post to grant anonymity for this— Well, the Post didn't, right? They, well, yes, they did because the they put it in their newspaper. Okay. So they're, they're publishing an article to promote a book and granting anonymity inside that article to promote their own book. And we got to do better on standards for anonymity. We just have to do better because a big part of why our politics stinks is there's so much— And this is, I would just tell you folks, relatively new. Ten years ago, standards for anonymity in this kind of political gossip column stuff were way higher. And we have, even in that short period of time, fallen pretty far. I agree with you that, particularly in the Trump era, I was certainly guilty of this. There was a lot of granting of anonymity for, like, palace intrigue, uh, colorful quotes, gossip type of stuff. Uh, I'm torn about it because, for obvious reasons, the people who are actually close to these things don't want to be on the record. And Rich Lowry, my boss at National Review, was always in favor of anonymity because he said, like, you get more you get better and more colorful stuff. And I agree with you that I didn't really think about it when I was doing it. I just uh, became a sort of a standard practice. Uh, What I find challenging is this anecdote comes anonymously. And by the way, if Millie did say this, like, you know, that's a bad reflection on him and his understanding of history, in my view, is the granting of anonymity for things that are kind of unfalsifiable. Like presuming that Millie isn't going to come out and say on the record, I didn't say that. I'm sure they would still stand by it even if he said that. But the other one was the Atlantic article uh, that where Trump alleging based on anonymous sourcing that Trump had called, you know, wounded and uh, fallen soldiers. uh, I forget what it was, but. Oh yeah. Losers uh, like the Losers, stupid, whatever. And, so I do think it's problematic with these things that are not factual, like what's right. going to happen, but are but but add color and personality and stuff. Um, it, it's hard, though, I can and say, having having done the job. It's it's uh, there are no absolutes here. I mean, there's a couple absolutes, but mostly this is you have to play it by by feel as an editor and as a reporter. But my point is, we are so far off the beam now with this stuff because really it is gossip that's that's what it comes down to is gossip and i think it's very unfair to people like millie because millie as you say cannot come out and say well he why can't he he of course he could well because then well he could but now he finds himself in a trap now let's talk about it well did you say this did you not say well i did say it but that was in a discussion and there was a larger context i agree with you he's unlikely to do so but i wouldn't do it if i was him if i were him and I had said, yeah, I agree with that. I would not come out and do it. So this is where reporters have these folks in a trap. They can't comment. It's sort of like there is a whole school in the national security coverage 
where people can talk about uh, secret squirrel stuff that they report on it. How would you know whether it happened or it didn't happen, right? Secret sources inside of the, you know, the NSA or the CIA or in, in Kabul or whatever, all the secret stuff's going on. How will I know? I don't know. And that's where you have to really trust the reporter. Up next, this is an NBC News piece on The Atlantic and their struggle for subscriptions and, as a result, subscription revenue. You and I found different things of interest in this piece, (laughs) but Dylan Byers at NBC News reports that for the first time, the number of subscribers has plateaued and started to decline at The Atlantic and that the magazine has lost more than $20 million and is on track to lose another $10 million this year, according to slides. Talk about not anonymous sourcing. According to slides of the presentation that Atlantic CEO Nicholas Thompson gave and that was shared with NBC News. So why don't you start telling us what you found of interest in this piece, and then I will tell you my much more interesting take on this. Do you read The Atlantic? Are you a subscriber? You know, I used to read The Atlantic, and I have found that, like The New Yorker, so I used to subscribe to the print edition of The New Yorker. I really looked forward to it. There was always one or two articles that were of interest to me that had nothing to do with what I do for a living. I remember there was a fantastic one on a surgeon who repaired people's vocal cords and lots of stuff, like great profile on Dr. Oz. And I found that uh, there was less and less things of interest to me that didn't have anything to do with politics. The Atlantic, too, I feel like has become kind of predictably left wing rather than uh, there was a point at which, you know, the point at which they hired and fired Kevin Kevin Williamson Williamson. when they were like heterodox and interesting. And so I I don't read The Atlantic very often uh, and I don't read The New Yorker often anymore either. That's a that's a great parallel. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but you're 100 percent right. The New Yorker, I forget when I canceled my New Yorker subscription, just because it was so boring. It became so predictable. It it was such a one note. And it was, I held on for a long time because. And then on the politics stuff, you know what they're going to say. And it's like caricatured versions of uh, things that both you and I know a lot about. What I want to go is like read about who are the doctors on the frontiers of science and. Or who are, where's the Calvin Trillin? Uh, where's the uh, old school? You love Calvin Trillin. This is like the third uh, mention in two episodes. Well, let's let's say who were the who were the greats? Joseph Mitchell, Calvin Trillin, and probably my favorite, even more than Calvin Trillin, A.J. Liebling, who wrote the most delightful political scene book ever, uh, which was the Earl of Louisiana about Earl Long's run for governor from an insane asylum. Uh, you, I forgot to tell you that a reporter friend of mine. Uh, at a, a prominent reporter friend of mine, not to brag, mm-hmm. you know who you are, <laughs> told me that he bought the Calvin Trillin collection of essays based on your recommendation. They will, so, not, they will not be sorry. They will not be sorry. But uh, I And I should plug my own Calvin Trillin. I got into him when I read his book about Alice. Yeah. That was about the death of his wife. And it was really a beautiful a, uh, love. What a great uh, I don't know what the word for it is, but so it was the, it was beautiful. The New Yorker was a place that you could get a lot of interesting stuff that came from a lot of places. The Atlantic for a period of time, I would say five years ago and around then, was really interesting and telling interesting stories from different places. And the energy that, what's his name, the editor um, who hired and fired? Jeffrey Goldberg. That uh, Goldberg's energy that he was trying to zhuzh it up. He was trying to make things more interesting by bringing in different voices and all that stuff. Now it feels very predictable, and it's like you can just, and I'm not trying to belittle these things, but it's like you could close your eyes and say like, okay, it's three stories about climate change, 
It's two stories about racism, and it's a story about uh, Donald Trump and the Republican Party. I'm not saying that the individual stories aren't right, but the mix is— Well, we're a little far afield from our original— Well, uh, anyway, my point— What did we find interesting about this decline in subscription revenue and the Atlantic struggle for— well, it's just so that you can survival. Just so that you can get to your your more interesting point than mine. <laughs> My less interesting point is that for the Washington Post, for the New York Times, for the Atlantic, for a host of these publications and outlets, Trump is right that <laughs> they'll miss me when I'm gone. He said. And how do you keep journalism going? How do you get people clicking and subscribing when the constant sense of crisis is not there? And the temptation, and I think this explains some of the homogeneity at the Atlantic, the temptation is to turn into, to to maintain a crisis footing forever. Uh, because when this crisis, when the crisis of Trump is done, then the crisis of intersectional racism presents itself. And then if that, if you get tired of that, then the crisis of the climate is present and it's exhausting. It's not fun to read. And of course, outlets on the right are guilty of the same thing in reverse, but it's like, we, we have to get back to some, we have to normalize normalcy. I think you just coined a new word. Uh, what I found interesting in this piece was, and Dylan Byers, the author, does get into it a bit. Essentially, he gets into whether Laureen Powell Jobs, who bought The Atlantic from David Bradley, is willing to lose money on this. If the place is losing money, how much money she's willing to lose. And this is something that we've talked about at The Beacon that uh, struck me is that for Laureen Powell Jobs, who is worth 24 or $26 billion, she owns the Atlantic. She's a top investor in Axios. She's an inve- a contributor to or investor in Mother Jones. And in and she's an activist Democrat who funds, they're essentially these Democratic newspapers that print the press releases for politicians and pretend they're news called Courier News that's gotten a lot of attention. She's a funder of that. And the lack of attention paid to in the media paid to her role as a rising media titan who owns, invests in, has influence in a lot of different publications, most of which lean to the left, I think is amazing. And I also think it's a really good and interesting story. And worthy of note is that she she buys and invests in these things through her company called Emerson Collective. I you know, that usually weird. Yeah, well usually these people have nonprofits, 501c3s, and there are stringent disclosure requirements for nonprofits. So an increasing trend and one that she that she embodies is using LLCs to do yep. this sort of charitable purchasing or giving. And so it's totally opaque. And we don't really, it seems to me like a ripe subject for reporting because we don't really know the totality of her investments and, uh, and influence. Yeah, if, it's, if, if there's a demand in public to know who funds the Federalist, you would certainly think there'd be a demand in public to know about how all of this funding is working out, right? I think that is true. Sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. <laughs> um, and I, this came up with, you know, ProPublica leaking the tax reliefs of very— Re- returns of the mega rich, but I believe to date we, we're still waiting for the tax returns of any of their donors or investors. All right, now over to you. You've got you've got the kicker in our front well, page section. I, I do want to say though, I think it's great when rich people want to fund journalism, and if anybody wants to give us like millions of dollars so that we can have the greatest ink stained wretches, we can do it from an airship. It's fine. I'm well. I welcome 
if if you're out there, uh, Lorraine Powell Jobs, please send millions. We, we're willing to stop talking about you completely on this totally. podcast for yeah for a price for a price. We can be bought. I just wanted to point to I'm I'm easily delighted, uh, and I have to confess that I got this from Twitter. Uh, I do not tweet, but it was sent to me on Twitter, and it was apropos of a conversation I was having with my colleague David French. And these are, I'm going to read you two corrections from the New York Times, two years apart. Here's August 2019. Uh, An article on Tuesday about a 1996 law meant to prevent young internet companies from liability misidentified the law that protects hate speech. It is the First Amendment, not (laughs) Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And so that was 2019, laws. But then, July 9th, an earlier version of this article misstated what allows social media firms to remove posts that violate their standards. It is the First Amendment, not Section 230. So, to everyone... Don't worry, though. What we really need kids to learn in school is anti-racism. That's right. We, they, need to be, they need to be sent... Uh, what's his name? Kendi. Uh, they need to be sent how to be an anti-racist uh, and read that. But New York Times, I, I love you for trying... And there are very many people who Chef's are, kiss. who are trying to, who are trying to cover this story and not trying as hard as you are. So I appreciate you at least saying yes, free speech. It's a thing. Up next, our obsessions of the week, where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. Chris, you got the first one here. It's a weird obsession, and please excuse me for my obsession, but I want you to hear. I guess that's why they're obsessions. That was your idea, right? I want you to hear. What Benny Johnson, one of the anchors on Newsmax, had to say about Donald Trump and Batman? Mr. Trump. Yes. Are you Batman? I am Batman. (laughs) I'm Batman. Actually, I'm Benny Johnson. But as many of you know, we are enormous Batman fans on this show. The Dark Knight is America's finest superhero for obvious reasons. He is tough. He has the best tools and villains to fight. Batman has no special supernatural powers. Batman's an outsider looking in. The corrupt political law enforcement establishments of Gotham hate him because they cannot control him. Outsiders tend to see and solve problems that insiders cannot. They are by nature against the system, against the corruption of the establishment. This is what makes Batman iconic. He fights the corrupt establishment. Kind of reminds me of someone. Both Trump and Batman are rich, mysterious, unpredictable guys. They own skyscrapers in Gotham. They have a cult-like hero status for throwing their privileged lives away and getting their hands dirty. So not to pick on Benny there or anybody on Newsmax individually, but that's indicative of uh, what's going on at Newsmax. And it's kind of, you know, it's gross. (laughs) And it's a slavish, slobbering fealty to, as uh, Ben Sass likes to say, weird obedience to one weird dude. Uh, So that's a lot. You know, they've hired uh, Dick Morris and they who's making if you're hiring Dick Morris to make political prognostications, you may want to check. He was your, your colleague for many years and never and never write as a commentator on Fox News. Yeah, he was axed after 2012, was it? Because in 2000, the Fox audience was certain Romney was going to win that election in 2010. I and I had. There were others. He was sacrificed at the altar of bad predictions. There were there were other there were others uh, who made similarly unhelpful goofball uh, forecasts, including some people I had previously held in higher esteem. Uh, but in tw- I'll always remember my Dick Morris moment in was in 2010 when the Republicans had a record breaking, amazing run and picked up 
64 seats in the House. And I remember the meeting where Roger Ailes asked me, well, what's your number? Because everybody's talking about the number. Will it be this many? Will it be that many? And I said 63 or 64. I was very close on the button. And he said, well, more, Dick Morris says it's going to be 100. <laughs> and I remember having this terrible thought as I was leaving the meeting. I was very new at Fox. I thought, man, what if it is 100? And it's like, it can't be 100. But what if it is? Then you're, you're totally hosed, dude. So I've, I've been dealing with Dick Morris's bad prognostications for a long time. But His turn from presidential whisperer to right-wing pundit. I remember at, at some point, I think he was a guest on the National Review Cruises. Yeah, he he's was, had, uh, was quite the he's thing. Had, he's had a Dershowitz-like yeah. uh, career arc from Clinton defender to Trump. And I think what they have in common is they're defenders. They just are, they're, they're willing to say stuff on behalf of people that other folks won't. But who cares about Dick Morris? The point is, so here's Newsmax. It's weird and it's too much. And my obsession about this is, very few people, relatively speaking, watch Newsmax. But part of the way that Fox News is breaking itself is by imitating this stuff. Now, that's not to say that Newsmax didn't start out imitating Fox. But Fox has to understand that its, its competition isn't Newsmax and OANN. Its competition is people not watching news on TV. It's, it, it has other competitors. It's interesting that you say that because I actually I can't comment on this because I don't watch Newsmax. And... Uh, I don't really watch Fox News. And I grew up, you know, I was different type of high school student, but I grew up, I would come home and like the primetime Fox News hours starting with special report were like my Bible. Yeah. I absolutely love them, but I don't really watch. And it it's anymore. not to say that there aren't hours of news on Fox anymore. You'd special report is still there. I, I admit my bias. Uh, my my friend Dana and my friend Bill Hammer, I think. So it's not that there's nothing, but the move towards more uh, more narrative and less news to try to chase the viewers who might be who might be tempted by the 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 beige inanity of Newsmax or OANN. Yes, I understand that, but that's only one group of viewers that you might lose. You also have already lost and will continue to lose folks who really just want some reliable news, especially during the day, less narrative, more news. So it's a trap. Don't, if, 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 if you work at Fox, don't follow Newsmax. If you're the Fox CEO listening to this. Don't follow Newsmax. Do good news and put good news on television. I got a two-part obsession this week. Both related to this and both related to the New York Times. So like speaking it. of, uh, you know, partisan inanity, some of our listeners may recall, uh, when was it? In in January of this year, the New York Times had a freelance editor by the name of Lauren Wolf who tweeted, so this was late January, during the inauguration that Biden's landing at Joint Base Andrews gave her chills and also tweeted oh, about yeah, the yeah. pettiness of the Trump administration and called it mortifying and childish. So, OK, uh, you know, they're not really like remarkable comments, but probably not the wisest uh, things to air on Twitter if you are an editor at The New York Times. So she was dismissed in late January and she has now written a, a Washington Monthly article. Oh, excuse me. The headline being, I am a biased journalist and I am okay with that. She writes, uh, this is Lauren Wolf, pretending that we're all able to be constantly and utterly objective just feels absurd to me. 
Instead, I've always believed it is better to be open about my views on the issues I cover, which for a long time have been war and international human rights. And yes, I often do write with an agenda with an eye toward creating change. Okay, so she also writes in here that, you know, the little people who consume news just don't understand the difference between an essay format and a hard news article. And sometimes your opinion's appropriate and sometimes it's not. So there are like multiple levels on which I found this interesting. The first is like, yes, as reporters, we all know it is uh, that's like a tautology. It is impossible to be actually to achieve the platonic ideal of objectivity. What we've given up and what she essentially says is that we should not strive for objectivity anymore. There are ways to mediate your own biases, including by like thinking about what would the best opposing argument be? What would this person say in their own defense uh, if they're not quoted or weren't reachable for your piece? Um, And so I found that to be like not even entertaining the argument that, of course, we can't be objective. Should we strive for it? She seems to believe no. Also, she goes on to write, you know, that these people, they just don't understand what's an essay and what's a what's a magazine piece and what's a news piece. This woman was fired for tweets when she was an editor of the live desk, the breaking news desk at The New York Times. Uh, And so I think these tweets are probably not appropriate for somebody in that position. Speaking of, you know, when it's appropriate to air an opinion and when it's not. uh, But anyways, very representative, I think, of where journalism is moving, which is, as she says, with an eye toward moving to creating change being the goal as opposed to informing the public and allowing the public to push for change or not push for change as as they see fit. And this leads into the, you know, the the reporter at The New York Times who perhaps most embodies Mm. the push for creating change and the abandonment of objectivity, Nicole Hannah-Jones. So somebody on Twitter commented, and I have heard murmurs about this from people at the New York Times and people in senior positions in journalism who aren't at the New York Times, but that her productivity is incredibly low. She's listed as a staff writer at the New York Times, her productivity for the New York Times. She may be incredibly productive in other areas, but in the past year, she has not written an article for the New York Times magazine of which she is a staff writer. And what struck me as sort of funny is that there have been more articles in the New York Times about her and about her fights for tenure than those written by her in the past year. And I did go through the uh, Times Magazine staff writers to see if this is, in fact, the standard uh, cadence at which writers, staff writers write. And it is not. Uh, There's one woman who also has not written in the past year, Pamela Koloff, who has a joint some kind of joint position with ProPublica. You know, what strikes me about Nicole Hannah-Jones isn't even necessarily her her productivity or anything like that. But she then is on Twitter responding to these people who are noting this, you know, retorting, giving retorts back. And it it is amazing to me, the, you know, for somebody who is ostensibly serious and a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, the total lack of discipline and self-awareness and like wisdom when it comes to engagement on social media. I think it was like not two months ago after she doxed my colleague Aaron Sabarium that she said she was getting off Twitter. Uh, Now she's back responding to her critics. So all of that interesting. It seems to me she's um, she's more the mascot of The New York Times than she is like the the star reporter. Yeah, Bernd. Any uh, comments? First, 
she needs to read the piece we talked about last week from uh, Caitlin Flanagan uh, about definitely why uh, to get off Twitter and don't waste your time and energy there. I think Lauren Wolf is there are no new ideas. This is an old idea. What she is talking about is not a innovation. So this is what we'll call post journalism. I will not plug my AEI panel that's going to take place on the 29th of January or 20, the 28th of uh, July on the subject. Go to AEI. How do we go from 29th of January to 28th of July? I got, I got, well, the, uh, Samantha, uh, my associate, Samantha Goldstein is here and she waved me off as she often does. No, that is not right. Um, thank you. Thank you, Samantha. So the post, the concept of post journalism is not new, but it's an old idea dressed up. So you are 100% right that you, the post-World War II, Ernie Pyle, what was his name? Good night and good luck. Um, Edward R. Moreau. The, the, the uh, Cronkitean Moreauian. Was that Moreau or Cronkite? No, it was Moreau. Okay. But Cronkite too. But the Cronkitean, uh, the Cronkite Moreau standard about there is perfect objectivity that can be obtained. Now, there could be perfect objectivity in covering the Hindenburg crash or something, right? You could be perfectly objective in covering a hurricane or something like that. But as soon as you get to politics and policy, it gets very weird. So it's true that we never lived up to that standard, that the standard even during the post uh, Pearl Harbor bubble was not really met. So it's true. On the other hand, I don't know if I have managed to quote Rochefoucauld every week, but it seems to come up a lot here, uh, which is that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. Uh, We know that we cannot meet the standards of perfect objectivity, but we must try to maintain some standards of objectivity. You know, Fox scrapped its really good motto, which was fair and balanced. That's the idea. Look, not every story is going to be perfect. Not every story is going to contain every viewpoint, but you have to be fair minded and you have to seek balance. And the reporters who are engaging in this post-journalism claptrap are simply going back to an earlier time where, yes, everything was biased. It's true. If you read the newspapers of the early American Republic, if you read the newspapers through much of American history, they were hugely biased. That It was on purpose. So what they're doing is not new. Uh, I believe it was the, the – I think it's the Twain quote. Uh, a guy sent him a book unsolicited, and he said, I have received your book. Uh, it is both novel and good. Unfortunately, the parts that are good are not novel, and the parts that are novel are not good. Well, I do have to say, like, two cheers for this Lauren Wolf woman, because I appreciate her honesty that she uh, doesn't strive living for out objectivity. La- living, out, living out loud. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's better than the people who are obviously biased and claim to be objective. All right. I think we're ready for our... For... Are you ready to say something nice? I see the, yeah. hes- the oh. hesitancy oh. Oh. that you feel as you have to come I'm in I'm going to make you nice. go first. So, finally, we have our favorite items of the week, where Chris twists my arm and makes me say something nice. It actually was not was not hard for me this week, but Chris, um, you know, lead by example. Well, the first thing uh, is I want you to hear this clip that is, I swear to goodness that this is actually Keith Oberman on TikTok. Let's hear him. Months removed from Trump's coup, many of us have begun to think of him in the past tense. This is a fatal mistake. For groups like Patriot Front have been given license by Trump and have been emboldened by Trump, and they will not go away until we make them go away. And what makes them especially dangerous now is not just that they delusionally believe Trump will somehow be restored to the presidency next month. 
It's that Trump is now demanding the identity of the peace officer who shot Ashley Babbitt, one of the terrorists who attacked the Capitol during Trump's last coup attempt. He wants the name unmasked so that his worshipers can try to kill the officer, just as they wanted to kill Mike Pence. Donald Trump is not, in the functioning sense of the term, a human being. To him, only his needs matter, only he exists. The worst of his followers, like Patriot Front, agree with him. In point of fact, of course, if Donald Trump were to unmask the person responsible for killing Ashley Babbitt, he would be unmasking himself. Ashley Babbitt was killed by Donald Trump, as sure as if Trump pulled the trigger. So whether or not you agree, I don't. Uh, Keith Urban's having a pretty hard time being out there on TikTok. But uh, not Keith Urban, Oberman. Oberman. I didn't say Keith. Did I say Keith Urban? You did. Sorry, Keith. Keith. Sorry, the, sorry, the Keith, Keith Urban who we don't like. Well, there's also the Keith Urban, who's the country music yeah. singer. So he's he's probably not having a hard time on TikTok. I think he's married to Nicole Kidman. So they probably have a great TikTok account. Uh, but Keith Oberman does. So my kudo is to Keith Oberman for keeping on trying. You could say it's a little sad, but I think it's a little inspiring that he's out there trying to use the new medium. So I have a challenge to our listeners, all eight of them, which is if I get enough followers at Chris.Styerwalt on TikTok, it's Chris.Styerwalt. Eliana and I will do a TikTok video for the internet. Do you agree? After Chris explains to me, like, what TikTok is. So how many should we set the standard for? 100? 150. 150. Okay, if we get 150 TikTok followers, and I have— I'm meaning you, because I'm— Right, right, right. If if Chris.Styerwalt gets 150 TikTok followers, we will do, and I already have a corny video in mind, so it's good. My favorite item of the week is the New Yorker's interview with— White Fragility and Nice Racism author Robin D'Angelo by Isaac Chotner. And he's a fantastic interviewer. And I think this interview is a demonstration of letting somebody hang themselves by their own petard. Mm. Uh, You know, Chotner just asks the questions and really does let her talk and lets people see for themselves what what she has to say. Who is she? Tell us a little about the book. Robin D'Angelo, Nice Racism is just out. Read the Beacon review of it this weekend by my colleague, Andrew Stiles. It's excellent. But White Fragility is the uh, D'Angelo's first book, I believe. And she's the white lady. She's who... the white lady who who posits that all white people are racist because our institutions are racist. So even and if, if you we hire her. understand that we're racist, we uh, reflect the racism of our institutions. And any denial of that is just a reflection of your racism. So the sort of irrefutable argument. But she has risen in prominence, like, I guess, in the year plus since George George Floyd's death and commands stunning speaking fees. I, I should give say. a quick shout out to my <laughs> former Free Beacon colleague, Charles Lehman, who went through and found how much she's paid for speaking, which is, you know, in the twenty dollars to $30,000 range, depending on where. But also, she has an accountability page on her website where she listed all of these charities that she gives money to. And when Charles started calling them to verify this, she started editing her accountability page. Oh, boy. And the accountability page now tells you don't believe anything you read in the Washington Free Beacon, uh, blah, blah, blah. So, But, but she, she was like, basically, her pitch is to corporations and institutions. Yeah, like, I'll she come will teach come you how to. She will come and burn uh, sage leaves in the hallways and exercise the bad <laughs> spirits of institutional racism. So, so Chotner notes that in her new book, Nice Racism, which I have not read— she has a list of things that are racist 
And that one entry on the list is not understanding why something on this list is problematic. And he says to her, this seems to imply that someone who disagrees with you, Robin D'Angelo, is racist. Is there another tautological issue there? And the list also includes lecturing BIPOC people on the answer to racism. I'm sorry, what's a BIPOC? Black, indigenous, person of color. Oh, God. Yeah. By saying things like, people just need to. And Chotner says, this was obviously written by you, a white person, in a book that tells people they, quote, need to do various things. Is there a circularity there? Uh, So props to him for wonderful interviewing. I've enjoyed his interviews before. And lastly, Chris, I did not apprise you of this beforehand, but we need to do a correction. What is our correction? For the contention on last week's episode that George Washington did not use slave teeth. Oh, yes. But used hippopotamus teeth. He did use hippopotamus teeth. He did use hippopotamus teeth. And I believe the consensus is that he may have used slave's teeth. uh, And he did use human teeth. Maybe could have been his own. So can't rule it out. But uh, if we make a mistake, we will correct it and get it right. And so that is the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about. Or a correction. Uh, or correction, email us. This has been Ingstain Reshes from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Reshes. 